This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Andy Stumpf is our guest this week. He is a 17-year Navy veteran who spent much of that time as a SEAL and BUDS instructor. During his time serving, Andy became intimately familiar with just how devastating the loss of a brother in arms can be, both for our families and the military community. This is the driving force behind his project, Man on a Mission. Hear how Andy plans on making one epic jump to break four world records. As Andy states, the jump itself is merely a publicity gimmick to engage the public and raise awareness for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Of course, the crew has a number of questions about what the preparation, training, and execution of such a challenging jump will entail. Although Andy joins us to discuss the somber and noble pursuit of supporting the families of fallen service members, the Power Athlete crew can't help but round the conversation out with a good old-fashioned debate about the plausibility of various jumps seen in action movies. Can we expect to see Andy as a stunt double in the next installation of Fast and Furious? To find out, tune in. This is episode 126. Yo, what's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. Today I'm here with John, Luke, and Tex. And our guest is Mr. Andy Stumpf. He served our country for 17 years. Thank you for that. Yeah, he was a, uh, a well-thought-of member of the Merchant Marine. So thank you, Andy, for your service in the Merchant Marine. And hey, man, don't judge. <laughs> uh, you, you worked as a trainer for CrossFit HQ. You were on their seminar staff. And he was the also... trainer for CrossFit HQ, not H. The original, I'm told. The original, OG. We had, yeah, you guys are operating under uh, inaccurate information, but go ahead and continue. It, it took a level one between the years of uh, 1899 and 2010. Andy would have been your trainer. There you go. Yeah. So you're so, pretty much the guy. Yeah. You're pretty much I, w- I would not say that. I was around when it, uh, not when it first started, but when it was starting to get much more popular and growing. I was definitely around during that time period. Around the time when they uh, used to offer the level threes, right? But I know they're kind of bringing that around again. But uh, yeah. back in the yeah. day, there was like a, the original, there was a level one, the two, and the three. And coach. A couple of people got the uh, the coach uh, qualification. I don't even know exactly, I don't even know exactly what that entailed, but uh, there were a few people who were able to get that. Nice. And your uh, Kill Cliff sponsors you to do some skydiving and base jumping. They do. They do indeed. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, you know what? We were talking a little bit off the air about, like, you and John's history. Maybe we can just kind of get the ball rolling with that. Um, I kind of brought up that I remember you uh, You were being credited for coming up with the Go Fuck Yourself slogan. For those uh, – anybody out there, if you search John, you can find, like, the Phil Fest, F-I-L Fest from 2009 – John's up there at a podium. He's at like the Hyatt, and he's got a "Go Fuck Yourself" shirt on as he's addressing the <laughs> as he's addressing well, yeah, the yeah. delegates. Hey, man, before before we get going, like uh, if there's anybody who listens to both podcast podcast and this podcast, like let's not go through the fucking PG version of how you guys <laughs> met. I'm talking. I want full frontal. <laughs> what frontal. actually happened? And what are the fucking real stories? None of this bullshit. I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll let John uh, spin the tale since he likes to exaggerate, and then I'll just correct everything that he says afterwards. So, by all means. <laughs> uh, all right. So the way this went down, actually at PhilFest, uh, we were there as affiliate owners. So I was sitting there listening, and uh, I got tapped on the shoulder and was like, "Hey, you know, uh, uh, you should introduce CrossFit football." And I was like, "Well, um, I th- thought that." that was kind of a, an idea we were working on. And it was like, you know, this like Glassman had a, 
presented the idea, recommended the idea of doing CrossFit football. And then like a week later, we were out at the affiliate thing in uh, Austin, Texas. And he's like, hey, you should get up and, and uh, introduce it. And just mind you, I had uh, just started to kind of sketch what it would look like. And so I had to get up and anybody that's ever heard me speak definitely knows all I need is a microphone and uh, a, a little bit of uh, opportunity to, you know, spin a yarn. And I got up there and I talked a little bit about, you know, what CrossFit football was. And somebody, and I just so happened to be wearing the Go Fuck Yourself shirt, which was uh, printed and done as a reward for completing the Go Fuck Yourself Challenge, which was a Tabata deadlift where you had to get over 50 reps with 315 on the Tabata deadlift. So that's what the shirt was created. We, uh, we made the shirt never to sell it. It was more a gift to different people. And so we sent it out to different people, and we set up the Go Fuck Yourself Challenge. And then we've had people over the years try it, and the problem is we never made any more shirts. We could never technically give any out. But those original shirts existed. I just so happened to be wearing it. And somebody asked me a little bit about the shirt when I was on stage. Hey, what's up with that shirt? And I'm like, oh, it was... You know, it was recommended by my uh, life coach, Andy Stumpf, and uh, anybody that knows Andy uh, proceeded to start laughing because, you know, I have good timing like that. And uh, <laughs> people that don't know Andy, uh, you know, they kind of were like scratched their head a little bit and actually thought realistically that Andy uh, was my life coach. And a anybody that knows Andy can probably get a good chuckle out of this. Andy's probably, um, he, could, he could be a life coach, but it's all based on negative reinforcement, you know, having been a Navy SEAL and a BUDS instructor and, you know, a father and, you know, just an all-around, uh, you know, banging weights and shit talker. It just kind of kind of fell into it. So um, it uh, that's how that whole thing kind of came about. But, you know, Andy and I actually met, uh, you know, I was at a, a, a bar in Santa Cruz, and uh, Andy rolled in and tried to pick up on me, which was kind of a little uncomfortable. What was the name of that bar? To Andy? Yeah, the Blue Lagoon. So, this fucking guy. So we're we're up in Santa Cruz for the CrossFit Games, and Andy's like, "Hey, uh, you should go check out this bar called the Blue Lagoon in Santa Cruz. It's a good spot." So we get done with the games, and we cruise over there, and literally we walked into like the Blue Oyster Bar from uh from fucking Police Academy. Solid recommendation, <laughs> dude. And like 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 literally, there's dudes in like biker leather, like doing like you know the tango cheek to cheek, and I'm like, so what do we do? We go in, we order a bunch of pitchers of beer, get uh shit face drunk. And then proceeded to attack him and be like, that was the best spot ever. We had the most amazing time. And he's, he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, it was great. We drank beer. We hung out. People made a bunch of friends. He's like, huh, okay. So, yeah. I did uh, not see that coming. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> good, good times. So, uh, you know, anybody that's seen Every Second Counts knows that, you know, Andy was, you know, uh, had a pretty prominent part in that movie. And, uh, um, you know, other than, Probably my older brother, Ed, there's probably nobody on, on this planet that has the ability to verbally dress somebody down and take them to pieces verbally and emotionally like Andy Stumpf. And, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate anybody that has that type of, you know, quick wit, cynicism, and just fucking devilish forked tongue. It's pretty much so, accurate so far at this point. Yeah. Checks out. Honestly, like, the story that we told him, how we met, was true. Like, he yeah. was just, he was wallflowering up at a level one. And I just immediately walked over and asked him how long he'd been doing ballet. You know, that's how I think I opened it. And then so from there, it was like we were inseparable. So. Yeah, it was pretty much just like, what the fuck are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. I'm super dudes. What are you doing here? He's like, same yeah. thing. I'm like, awesome. Let's dude yeah. it up right now. And then, uh, and then the best was, uh, you know, I realized Andy and I were going to be friends as Brian McKenzie was invited to go up and give the nutrition talk. And as Brian gets up there and uh, – uh, I, I don't know if there's a word in the English language that can necessarily give context for the amount of bombing that he did during that nutrition talk. It was probably, that moment was probably where CrossFit realized that they had to standardize everything. Because if they let people fucking just get up there and ad-lib, it's going to be a fucking abortion. And uh, Brian's nutrition talk was probably the worst thing I've ever heard. It basically, like, people started hammering questions and he just sat back and, like, threw his fucking pen and was like, just eat fat, bro. And at that point, Andy was like, this is the worst fucking thing. And Greg and Nicole and everybody were in the back just fucking losing their mind. And l listening to the exchange going down, I realized Andy and I would be good friends just as hypercritical as he was of the whole situation. So that, um, But I believe that next seminar was where really CrossFit decided to standardize everything. And no longer were you allowed to think outside the box and basically had to become an autistic parrot monkey. So that's how it rolled. <laughs> And here we are today. Yeah. Best friends forever. Luke, yeah. is that the is that the full frontal explanation that you were hoping for? I just was curious what the first kiss was. You know, <laughs> a little 10-second Frencher with eye-to-eye -eye contact. I mean, no big deal. Normal. It was a lot of heavy petting, a lot of close you know, frontal 
uh, pelvic contact. Yeah, you know? John, we just, I mean, honestly, I think we hit it off, like John was saying, like, we both were outwardly verbalizing our thoughts on that particular moment in time where I think most people uh, probably think those things but don't choose to say them. I think we uh, realized in each other that we uh, had a lot of the same things going on. Well, let's talk uh, Let's talk about the Navy SEAL Foundation. What kind of got you wanting to, you know, wanting to get that out there and uh, create a foundation and kind of, like, support support these guys? Yeah, um... You know, it stems, uh, there's a lot of different factors that it comes from. Um, you know, I, so I did I did 16 years and 11 months in the military. It's just easier to say 17 instead of 16 years and 11 months. Uh, and, you know, when I got out, I was medically retired, and I was pretty satisfied with what I had been able to do. You know, I was able to do more than some and way less than others. And it kind of felt good at the time, like, you know, just put that aspect of my life to bed, move on, go do something else, uh, find something else that I want to do. And I thought I'd be able to just, you know, kind of set one bag down and pick up another one and move on. And you fast forward two years from that time when I got out of the military, and it's it's super frustrating to watch the news and see what's going on in the world, you know, everywhere in the Middle East. You know, politics aside, it doesn't, I mean, it just, it's frustrating from somebody who lived the majority of their adult life doing that stuff to watch what's happening. And even more frustrating when you can't do anything about it. You know, it was better when you could, uh, you know, hop on an airplane and go over there with some really close friends and try to have a positive impact. Uh, but when you have that option taken away from you and you basically sit on the couch and you watch the news stories, to me it started feeling like, uh, you know, the tide was slowly going out on all the work that we did. So, you know, an inch at a time that's going to become a foot, that's going to become a mile. And it's frustrating. It's super hard to sit back and let that happen. And I wanted to still be able to do something. And... Uh, I got pitched with the idea of attempting to break the current wingsuit records, uh, and there's a couple of them. You know, some involve or one involves the max height, the other ones involve you know distance traveled flying in the suit itself. But I was given the opportunity to take a crack at those, which is right around the same time I was introduced to Killcliffe, who has a yearly obligation, a commitment to the SEAL Foundation, of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it was kind of a combination of all those events. Uh, I learned more about what the SEAL Foundation did through my involvement with Killcliffe, and the more that I learned, uh, the more it sounded like a really good place to focus my effort. Because in my mind, if I can't go do it myself, I think the next step in still being involved would be to support the people that still are. And I know from a firsthand uh, experience that, or from firsthand experience, that if you know that there is an organization or an entity that is you know, designed to help, you know, preserve your legacy or help your family sustain and endure in case of a catastrophic uh, event, it does help put you at ease a little bit. Because, I mean, you know, we're not autonomous robots. You do have those thoughts in your head overseas, or at least I did. I can't speak for everybody. But, you know, knowing that an organization like that exists helps you do your job better because you can separate yourself a little bit from that worry. So I pitched the idea to the Killcliffe guys. I'm like, hey, you know, you guys have this yearly commitment to them of $250,000. I'm already doing uh, skydiving and base jumping and flying my wingsuit. Why don't we turn these jumps, the, uh, the attempts at the record, uh, into a fundraiser and try to raise that $250,000 and, and then some and just see how far we can take this thing for a spin. Uh, and the reason I chose a million dollars specifically when it comes to the Navy SEAL Foundation is that at about that dollar figure, uh, I start being able to have a direct impact to fund one of the tranches of what they do. So the SEAL Foundation in and of itself is huge. They have a variety of uh, support mechanisms. I mean, they'll do everything from, you know, educational benefits, uh, you know, laptops for kids, helping out with, you know, dental premiums. They'll do, uh, you know, child care assistance for family members, uh, you know, catastrophic support right when an event first happens, everything from helping you, you know, deal with the money that the military gives you to tax preparation, to flying in family members, to helping you with, you know, coordinating all the details that you would never want to have to figure out, right? Like, you know, do you want to cremate or bury your loved family member? So the, the amount of things that they do are, uh, they're awesome. They're amazing, the, the reach that that organization has. But at a million bucks, uh, or at that million dollar threshold, uh, it gets to the point where I could fund a specific tranche, which is their survivor benefit program, like the direct support that you're going to get and need upon that catastrophic event. 
uh, that's approaching the number that would support it for 2016, which is why I picked the dollar amount of a million dollars, and I chose that particular tranche because I feel that, you know, as as time, obviously, I've fortunately never had to deal with this individually, but seen uh, or experienced a lot of friends who have unfortunately been killed in that line of work. You know, the, the first moments are the most difficult to deal with, and then just the nature of the way things are, the more time you have between that event, uh, the easier it is to deal with. So I wanted to have, be involved with something that helped in that moment of, you know, intense need, which is where that survivor benefit program comes into place. So that's kind of how it all ties together. That's what I'm trying to do with the money. Uh, and the jump thing itself, that's just kind of like the little sexy pin in the ground that hopefully people will look at, and then I can... Uh, push their attention elsewhere because the jumps to me are completely irrelevant. It's just about raising the money for the SEAL Foundation. Now, um, Andy, how do you how do you get it? I mean, I'm sure it's part of just training in the SEALs, but how do you become an enthusiast or like where did the where did the tables turn where you said uh, I'm gonna you know part of my hobby or part of my training and fun is gonna be wingsuit yeah. fucking diving and skydiving? <laughs> like where does that where did that turn come in? Well, in the current day pipeline, everybody who comes through training uh, before they get their trident will get both static line and free fall qualified. So you get a little bit of a taste of it there, which is for the you know ease of explanations, just say that I did it that way in the military. I started very early in my career, uh, and I just really enjoyed it. Yeah. And then when I went out to the command on the East Coast, uh, they gave me some latitude to explore the direction um, of things that I wanted to pursue. And I was looking at a training calendar, and it just lined up that I could just hit school after school after school uh, on the air side of the house. So I did that, which gave me an even greater taste for it. You know, and the, the more experience you get, the more, uh, I don't want to see the more advanced things that you're able to do, but it gives you an understanding of what's possible. And then at some point, you know, you have a pretty good level of skill, and it's like, hey, where, where do you want to take this thing? So mm -hmm. I had been jumping for 10 years before I ever put a wingsuit on. It didn't make any sense to me looking at it, watching other people do it. I'm like, yeah, that seems like a wildly dangerous activity. Uh, and then a <laughs> buddy of mine talked me into it, and I put a suit on. I was like, oh, wow, this is this game is, changer. It's a game changer. I mean, you feel like you're flying. I mean, you're leading with your face forward. You're screaming through the air like 120 miles an hour. Total control, up, down, left, right, you know, your angle, your pitch, your glide. I mean, you, and you can feel the energy inside of the suit, and it's just like – I mean, it's hard to describe. And yeah, so they, it's, it's like it's like what, what I would imagine your first hit of crack is like. You do a couple of jumps in that thing. Oh, now I get it. Yeah, perfect. So to, turn it, to put it in terms that you guys would understand, right? It's like your first hit of crack. Uh, and, but then, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, learning to jump. The more skill you get, the more you realize what's possible, and then you start taking it into the base jumping environment, which is a completely different animal. You know, the suit's flying, but once you get the suit flying – you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but there's a difference between jumping out of an airplane and standing on a cliff and going from zero airspeed to full flight in the mm -hmm. suit. So it, it's, uh, I just got the taste in the military, absolutely loved it. Uh, yeah, and I don't think I have any intention of stopping or slowing down. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if you can share this, but is there, like, is there a military application of wingsuit? You know, I wish there was because I would just immediately create a training organization and tailor specifically to the military. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I honestly can't think of an application of the military because you can't really carry any gear. I don't know okay. where you put a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like where are you going to keep? It's just it just kind of defeats the purpose. So in the movies, I'm sure there's a military application for it. Yeah. In real life, I'm. Uh, well, in the movies, you don't have to cover those details. <laughs> totally. You know, I'm <laughs> sorry to report that in real life, I think there is no application <laughs> other than pure entertainment. Yeah. I guess yet. Who fucking knows, right? I don't know. What are some of the heights, you know, that we're talking about? Uh, maybe some of the records that you're training for, or like, what's the current, what's the current height uh, for like base jumping in a wingsuit? You know, I don't know if there's an actual record for current height in base jumping. In the base jumping world, I don't know if there's really people keeping track of the records. I've heard them talking about uh, there's a record for the longest flight off of a fixed object. Which okay. I believe, which I they did in Europe that was off a, a mountain called the Jungfrau, well, which I was I was staring at that thing for almost a month when we were uh, in Lauterbrunn, Switzerland in June. I mean, it's it's like a goddamn candy store for a diabetic. Yeah, it's insane. You can just you can jump off both sides of the cliffs. There's the Eiger. There's the Jungfrau. It's it's insane. 
So there's that. Uh, for the GoFundMe type stuff, the specific thing, there's four records that I know of uh, that are based around skydiving in a wingsuit. One of them is the highest exit, uh, which is 37,250 feet, which is currently held by Jonathan Flores. Uh, the other one was the longest time in freefall. You know, uh, a lot of people think that Felix Baumgartner with the Red Bull Stratus project has the longest time in freefall because he jumped from like 120,000 feet, but he also broke the speed barrier which is his body on the way down. So uh, he only fell for like seven minutes. The current record is nine minutes and six seconds in a wingsuit because you're, you end up flying at about a three-to-one glide ratio. So three feet forward for every one foot down. So a fall rate vertically of somewhere between 30 to 40 feet, or 30 to 40 miles per hour. So there's those two. Uh, and then there's the distance uh, flown in a wingsuit, so from when you exit the aircraft to when you deploy your parachute. And then there's the absolute distance. So from when you exit the aircraft, deploy your parachute, and then the distance you flew under parachute is added to the distance you flew in a wingsuit. So those are the four records that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, I'd like to break all four if I can. Uh, but again, you know, my metric for success would be uh, if I break zero records and raise a million dollars, success. If I break four records and I'm unable to raise the money for the SEAL Foundation, in my mind, that's a failure. So, again, it's just a little sexy pin that, like, hey, guys, look at this. And then while you're looking at this, I'm going to distract you and point you at what I'm actually trying to do. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. so what is it? What is the uh, – I mean, I assume you can't just fucking sit around, strap up a wingsuit every <laughs> once in a while, and pop off a, a cliff. I mean, you totally out. can. <laughs> Generally, it doesn't work out well for people who go that way. So what is uh, – I mean, being that, you know – a lot of our listeners are familiar with CrossFit yep. and like that training methodology. They certainly know the, our training style through uh, through Power Athlete. What does the training look like to keep you tip top and ready to fucking soar with the wingsuit on? So in the base jumping environment, it's interesting. Uh, you know, people say it's the most dangerous activity on the face of the earth, and I can totally see that because I have personally seen some people who pursue that activity. Uh, acting like complete idiots, uh -huh. and that explains to me why they flew into the trees or hit a rock going 120 miles an hour. I'm like, uh -huh. yeah, he, he was being an idiot. That's why that happened. Uh, but there's no barriers to entry. Like, you could go online right now and order a wingsuit. I could get you a base jumping gear store, <laughs> and we could zip it up, and I could teach you how to put the suit on, and you could just huck it, right? And there's people <laughs> that do that. It's a full-speed sport, right? There's no, there's no junior varsity base jumping. Yeah. If you decide to actually leave the object that you're jumping off of, Everything else that happens after that, your performance is mandatory, right? The jump is optional. The landing is not. That's the way that I put it to people. It yeah. doesn't mean you're going to come in under a canopy. You're going to land somehow. So to, make, yeah, to, so to make it safe, uh, the biggest thing is, uh, especially in the suits, is skydive a lot. Like I did four jumps yesterday, three jumps the day before. I'm all, the drop zone is right by my house, so I'm always out flying my suit because you need to be comfortable in what it feels like. And you need to fly it fast. You need to fly it slow. You just got to be super comfortable in every configuration. And the next thing is, is you need to be current flying the canopy, you know, because again, flying around is great if you deploy your parachute. You know, in in skydiving itself, about 85 to 90 percent of people actually die under a perfectly good canopy. They make a poor error in judgment or an error in height, or they attempt some radical maneuver under a totally good canopy, impact the ground, and then they die. So it's actually way more dangerous than the jumping itself. So you got to stay current on your uh, your canopy skills, and then if you're going to base jump, you need to stay current on your packing for one, because there's no reserve when you base jump. It's just one parachute, which is why you pack it a lot like a reserve. Uh, and then you got to stay current base jumping. You can't take six months off and just think you're going to go walk up to a cliff and send it. So, like before I went to Europe for a month, I was skydiving my suit a ton. I'd go up to Twin Falls, Idaho. I was base jumping a ton, just trying to put all the pieces together. And then when you start, you go to an environment that, you know, we went to Monte Brento, Italy, which is a like 4,500-foot mountain, and the ledge sticks way out. So you could jump off and have all sorts of problems, and you're probably going to be okay because you have time to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Then we went to Lauterbrunnen, which is tall cliffs, but they're sheer, and some of them are a little bit positive, meaning you got to jump off and actually fly your suit away from it. And you just kind of you got you to gotta graduate yourself up into the experience level, uh, technique is huge because it suits all about technique and then currency. So what is what's the technique for? I mean, I guess I'd say probably 99% of the fucking people listening right now. Yeah. 
I have no idea what I'm no talking idea. about. Like what? So like they, what's keeping I think they know what a wingsuit yeah. is. Yeah. You know, that's you strap it. It's like the flying squirrel suit, right? Pretty much. Yeah. The company that makes my squirrel suits is actually called Squirrel. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome. So we've seen. I think they've seen. You know, the fucking people are awesome videos or whatever the fuck. They, there's always a wingsuit in there. Yeah. So like, as you're as you're dressed up and you're you know suited up and you're going like, what are what are the points of performance? Uh, that you're focusing on. Yeah, so, you know, getting suited up, like, for me, it's all about uh, having a routine. So I zip up the same way. I check my all my stuff, all my zippers, because it would be just spectacular to jump off and have, like, your foot out of the suit, right? I mean, it is, people have done that stuff. That's, yeah. it's, I'm saying it's crazy the stuff you see. So I go through the same routine, uh, and then it's all about your body position. Like, it's basically you want to be, like, a plank. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an isometric hold. The suit restricts the range of motion of your arms, so you can pull them forward if you want to and put tension on the suit. Which it, you got to think about it like a wing. You're trying to make your body into the wing of an airplane. So super flat. Uh, and I try to think of trying to take the top of my head and drive it away from my toes. So I'm pointing my toes and I'm trying to like drive my head forward as hard as possible. Uh, and then just basically pushing into the wind. You're holding that isometric body position. And then if you can get that body position dialed in, then it becomes all about your angle of attack. You want to be... Uh, you want to have a little bit of a head-low attitude, so you're actually cutting through the wind, and the wind is going over both the top of the suit and the underneath it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you get too slow, just like an aircraft, it'll actually you feel it stalling. It starts waffling side to side. So your body position could be great, but you're just your angle of attack is wrong. It, I mean, it's crazy. It's literally you're literally flying a wing. You can totally feel it, just like you can in an airplane. It gets mushy when you're going slow, and when it's going fast, you're like, oh, oh, daddy. Yeah, because like, you can feel the energy in the wings because the yeah. wings you just have ram air being rammed into it. You can just push on it's it. Giving you lift. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's head position and hip flexion extension. I mean, it's everything's fucking... extension. You yeah. don't have any flexion really at all. I mean, your your legs are locked from your hip all the way down to your toes. Your toes are pointed. You don't want to keep a straight torso. I actually think of taking my uh, my sternum and trying to pull it in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you actually are going for a little bit of a. Would that be concave or convex? Yeah, concave. Concave. You're going for a little bit. You want a little bit of up at your pelvis between your head and your toe position. Like an air force. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I don't think you ever actually achieve that necessarily, but when you really get into that position and you feel like it's getting close, you'll feel the suit. It almost feels like you're falling out of the sky, but you're not. You're just at like the optimal lift position. So it's full extension. And then again, for like the record jump, here's what's interesting about the record jump is you can't train for that duration. Yeah. So that's nine minutes and six seconds held in an isometric hole where you're basically pushing against wind. So yeah. it's it's gnarly, but when I skydive, the highest I can get is usually 13,000 feet because the planes aren't allowed to go much higher. So uh -huh. you can go, you can base jump all day long, which you mean maybe get 30 seconds per jump. And like I said, it's a little bit of a difference because you're starting with no airspeed and then you're building. Or you can go civilian jumping, jump from 13,000 feet, maybe 18,000 feet if you can find a drop zone that'll let you do it. But there's nothing between 18 and 37,000 feet. So then so at, at 18,000, what what's the uh, duration of that jump? You can probably get over four minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can get usually from 12,500 feet, which is average at Skydive San Diego, I can get close to three, yeah. depending on how you're flying it. But you're smoked. Yeah. And so the, diff and you know, the difference between that hold for three minutes and nine, like, come on, man. Yeah. It sucks. And there's Seriously. no way to replicate it. Because you can't, 18,000-foot jumps, just, I mean, you're only getting a third and maybe a half of that time. So it's gnarly. Andy, I mean, isn't really the secret the fact that you are so elite that there's no difference between three and nine minutes? It's just your eliteness makes up for that six minutes? I mean, that's only for me, though. I'm trying to talk in terms that everybody else would understand. John. The common folk, the common man. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, the civilian <laughs> common folk. I mean, you know, when Andy just exudes, I mean, the guy pisses excellence. I mean, we're just, you know, just... <laughs> It's just, uh, you, you know what it is? You guys are becoming more excellent by just being in his sphere. So. I feel excellent. I'm not going to lie. You're welcome. I'm sweating less. You're welcome. I'm not as hungry as usual. <laughs> That's because you're eating all my jerky. Our, John, what is this my talk? We, us, our it's, team. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the 75 Kill Cliffs you're drinking today. And I'm like, dude, you're like, I think we need to get some more Kill Cliffs. I'm like, we had 70. No. You're like, oh, that was No, yesterday. no, listen. Don't you are a you are on a five kill clip a day ration, okay? I have one a week. Don't point at me like I'm over here fucking hogging all this kill clip. Well, when I'm in need, I'm in desperate need. Guess what? It's empty. And now that fucking Nate's working out with us, you know how many kill clips that fucking kid has? Oh, it's, he's the fucking dude. worst. He, dude, him and those hoochies are like kill clip jerky fucking uh, uh, like black holes. Andy, you mentioned your routine prior to jumping. <clears throat> 
Can you yep. talk about your approach to getting in the zone? Because jumping, you have a choice. So is there any time you said, not today, versus the military, you've got to go? Uh, you know, a lot of the limiting stuff, even on the military side, is weather. So, you know, the base jumping stuff, it's kind of just assessing the environment, looking at the weather. The biggest thing is probably the winds and visibility. Like, you obviously don't want to jump into a cloud that's below you, especially if it's close to the ground. Uh, and then wind will get you. You don't want to go with a tailwind because it'll kind of it uh, decreases your start performance, so your suit will start flying a lot slower. Optimally, actually, it would be like five knots in your face. But as far as getting in the zone, um, you know, the one thing I do really like about base jumping, especially in Europe, is it's it's really physical. I mean, we were hiking probably 10 to 15 miles a day, getting six to seven jumps. So you got the whole walk to kind of like think about what you're going to do, and then you get to the point where you're going to jock up. And you know, you're unpacking all your stuff. You give it a check before you put it on, and then I think it just you kind of just naturally start focusing more and more as you get closer to the exit. And then the last thing you know is as you're zipping up your suit and getting everything ready, you know it's uh it's that moment right when you get your toes over the edge. And uh, I mean for me that's like that's kind of the I don't know if I would call it the zone. I just it's just that moment of extreme focus where everything else in your life that's total BS just kind of fades away, and you're thinking about probably the next three seconds that is to come. Like, I, I'm no longer worried about whether or not I remember to transfer money to my checking account or, you know, what we're going to have for dinner that night. It's just crystal clear focus on what's going to come next. And then I usually just give myself a nice countdown from, uh, you know, three, two, one, and then off you go, off to the races. Do you listen to any music? Uh, like, do you have anything in your head, headphones, like fucking, I don't know, Suicide Solution or anything? Uh... Usually I'm listening to one of my son's favorite, you know, What Does the Fox Say? That's a pretty good one to have a TV ripping on the exit point. But, no, it's, uh, oh, surprisingly enough, somebody brought that song Just up. Frozen. Just and frozen. We were, yeah. Let it go. Let it go. Dude, we were in Europe, and somebody brought up What Does the Fox Say? And somebody uh, pulled it out on their iPhone and started playing it. And for, like, three days, I couldn't get that song out of my head. It's the worst song ever. You just kind of wanted to glide into a mountaintop just to fucking make it stop? Yeah. When I'm up at the bridge jumping, I'll listen to some music just because it's a more, I think it's a more contained environment. Uh, and plus, you're hiking out of there. You're doing probably eight to ten jumps a day, so the music kind of just helps you keep going. But uh, on the edge of a cliff, I actually enjoy kind of just nothing in the ears and just listening to everything. And, yeah, music doesn't really help me in that particular moment, other than what does the fox say. Yeah. Which just well, isn't I mean, even in your ears, <laughs> yeah. it's in your fucking brain. Yeah, you're like, God, um, if I don't crash, I'm going to have to listen to this again, so let's fucking end it now. It's an amazing song. I don't know why they haven't received multiple Grammys for whatever award <laughs> they get. Uh, I'm surprised nobody's covered it in like seven <laughs> different genres, like a country version, a metal version, maybe like a uh, like a whole like ballet symphony, you know, like Russian deal with fucking, you know, uh, you know guys in tights. You know, you know the deal. I know that, yeah, I see where you're going with this. Man, I was just thinking about that, how Sylvester Stallone could have used the wingsuit when he was in First Blood. He's climbing on that cliff, and he, he just jumped and let a tree break his fall. I'm I mean, thinking, that's man, if he would have, I mean, and that, that's real, right? I mean, that's, that can happen. He kind of so did. He, he did kind of have a squirrel suit, but it was just a big knife. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So not that we're, those, those were lats, not not a squirrel shoe. <laughs> those were his lats. Have you seen Furious 7, where they parachute cars into yes, a Yes, I have seen that. So Utterly, is that completely, real? Come on. What do you mean? <laughs> well, obviously it happened in a movie. So you're talking about the documentary Furious 7? <laughs> yeah, so obviously anything that's produced by Hollywood should be treated as a documentary, right? If it's on television or in the movies, it's a documentary. Andy, or on the internet. Yeah. Andy, remember we went over to your house and you showed us those videos of you guys flying out those like massive fucking cylinders out of those yeah, big guns? Yeah, so like what was the biggest thing, you know, like, and I'm just thinking in terms of Fast and Furious 7 kind of, like, perception, like, you've jumped out with a tank, so technically those guys could have flown those cars out. Yeah, no, that's total just CGI. I mean, I appreciate the uh, the action sequence, but you can't, I mean, I suppose you could probably do that with cars, and you could rig them up to do that. The odds of them all landing in the same place under a round parachute is absolutely zero. What about, like, at least on the road? All on the same road. That seems realistic. 
Oh, yeah, does it seem realistic <laughs> that they'll land within five feet of each other? Yeah, no, let's just put that all up to uh, Hollywood magic. And, again, I appreciate uh, okay. the action sequence, but no way in hell is that all actually right, happening. documentary, though. What about I think the, scene? The, the one car had a Hemi, so he turned it on, and the wheels were spinning before he landed. So technically, that could have pushed the parachute, right? Sure, yeah. Maybe if you put big paddle wheels like uh, dirt bikers have uh, for the desert, maybe they could, he could just paddle himself through the air. That might work. Well, you know, there, there, there's going to be uh, – I, I heard the other day that Vin Diesel has agreed to three more. I saw it. Yeah, Furious yeah, yeah, so, so they're going to do uh, – yeah, they're going to do ten of them in the sequence. And he feels that's enough. He's capping it at ten. Shouldn't just want to think you go. You can't do anything any stupider. You go do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Yeah. Oh, dude. You know what? Like, I'll tell you this though. There's going to be a day when that tenth movie comes out that we're going to get all ten movies and watch them in one day back to back. Yeah, it'd be a shame not to. That would be our. That would be when we, uh, you know, we fulfill Bo Colombo's dream and get a, you know, a 1978 mobile home and drive it down to the 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 tip of Chile, or whatever the fuck he wants to do. The tip of what? DVD player in there. The ch- tip of what? That's Chile. Power Chile. Good God. In <laughs> um, Does that have anything to do with the Cheeto in your pee hole? Are you talking to me or Andy? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You guys jamming Cheetos in each other's pee holes right now? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> oh, good thing this so, isn't video. Whoa. So, Andy, I, with, with this skill set, I guess... Could, could you, talking about the silver screen, could you be a stuntman for, let's say, a movie that's fucking fe- like featuring a wingsuit hey, scene? First of all, okay. nobody puts Baby in the corner, so Andy would have to be the star of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to go through my agent, which his name's John Walborn, so okay. he could negotiate the uh, contractual yeah. details. Yeah, contact my uh, Andy's agent. This is guy John. You can yeah. reach him at uh, raven at powerathletehq.com. Well, because I'm saying like that new point break has to have some fucking wing jumps. Oh no! It, so those guys did that for real too, and I know the guys, uh, a couple of the guys who were on that. So the short answer is, yeah, I totally could. The long answer is though, is that that industry is very insular, and there's already people doing yeah, that stuff, and they're like, they they don't want to. I don't blame them. I'm imagining they get paid extremely well, so they don't. I don't think they necessarily want to uh, share the work as much as possible. Right. So yes, I could. The has to die, of, basically. Yeah, the likelihood of me ever doing that. Zero. Yeah. Andy, do you know a JT Holmes? I do. I know JT Holmes uh, passingly. I don't know him incredibly well. He is one of the guys. So he was one of the guys who did the wingsuit uh, jump in the Transformers movie off of the uh, Trump Towers in Chicago. Okay. Yeah, because he's that stuntman. Yep. He's one of the. He's one of the guys who's dialed in. There's another guy named Jeb Corliss who's got some crazy videos on the uh, on the intranet. Yeah. To include him hitting his shins on uh, Tabletop Mountain. He's the guy who hit in his suit, like flipped off and then pulled his parachute. He's dialed in in that industry. And again, like I said, it's like you're in and they just tick themselves in, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. And they just, uh, they keep it very insular. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. What kind of, are they uh, using like sponsored equipment? You know, because I started thinking like what, I'm sure you could get real crazy on like throwing down some serious cash and getting like the best wing suit. And then there's probably like cheaper versions Cheetos, best wingsuit. Cheetos. Cheetos wingsuit. They're getting all the good stuff. They they get all of the uh you know they basically and this is again from my understanding from what I've been told if you're approached for a project that like like that for Point Break for example like they went to Europe for a month on the production cruise dime got super current uh the the movie is going to tell them what they want the look and feel of the suit to be so then they order it based off of their size so you're probably going to get a new set of gear. But it's going to be based off, like the Transformers one was all black. Mm-hmm. So you can get whatever suit you want, but you're going to get it in the colors that they want for the movie. Uh, and then, actually, I, I don't know if they let them keep it. Yeah. It would be nonsensical for the production company to keep it, because I can't imagine anybody else using yeah, what it. Are do, like, what are they going to do, resell it or put it in a fucking closet for somebody else who has it? Like, you know, like rock and roll McDonald's, bro. Who you knows, put man. that wingsuit up in there, get yourself a double G, take a look at the Transformers wingsuit. Yep. Man, no, I mean, they probably kept them and they'll probably give them to like the Hard Rock Cafe and there'll be yeah. some fucking exhibit at the Hard Rock be like oh here's the wingsuit from Point Break bro. Yeah, yeah they might have for all I, I don't know but I, I would imagine if you're working on a project like that you're probably getting paid enough that you wanted to buy another suit yeah you're set. Like you're gonna be okay. I mean they're not that they're like 1500 bucks for a suit it's not yeah. like they're made out of unobtainium you know yeah. so. <laughs> so is there any way we could get uh, uh, you know measured up for some wingsuits I mean I, I don't necessarily know if we're ever gonna do it but it'd be cool just to have one 
Are there size restrictions, I think, is what we're getting at? John is not the right size to skydive, <laughs> right? He needs to be a land-based mammal. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, but John, you could, it, I mean, honestly, I could get, I could show Luke right now, and by the time we're done with this, he could have a suit, like, on order, ready to go. Because they, it's like, how many jumps do you have? You could put in zero or a million. There's no way that they could double check. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's really easy to order suits. John, we're, we're base jumpers now. Yeah, I'm fucking in, dude. You know, I no, mean, uh, I will t John, I won't take you up to the bridge in Twin Falls, and we can do a, uh, you can do a base jump, and you can land in the river, so you don't have to worry about the, uh, the, the flare and landing. Dude, let's do it. Uh, you know what? The only thing I want to do is, uh, I say we put a Deadpool together with uh, Alex Sonnenberg at the top of it. Sonnenberg? He, he, just, he just got back from Europe. So he was I, over there when we were in uh, Europe. He showed up with us. Did two days in Italy and five days in Switzerland, and he's like, he's all in. Like, he's loving it right now. Who is this? Alex Sonnenberg. Mutual friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Andy uh, uh, always tells me the great story of going out to skydive with uh, Sonnenberg, and he's like, dude, he's up there just totally outside of his fucking skill set, totally outside of his comfort zone. Just trying he's to almost killed me multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. Confirmed, like, murder attempts while skydiving with Alex. Like, they were jumping, and Andy's like, seriously, dude, I'm going to get in my car and drive away. I'm going to fucking hurt you. And he's like, what, dude? And he's I like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally just took down. Andy out. Like, so why, what, what happened? What went down? Like, he just decided to fly underneath me. It pulled, like, we're supposed to go in opposite directions, and he started leaving going that direction, and the next thing I know, he's coming back underneath me and deploying his parachute. <laughs> like, I had to sit him down. I'm like, Alex, like... You can't, you can't do that. It's not cool, dude. Like, yeah. So let, anyone else with less experience, that could have been like just catastrophic. So, so this is yeah. the same dude. Uh, this is the same guy that uh, took me out to the desert and and uh, showed me how to pack C4, and we blew up a bunch <laughs> of shit out in the fucking desert. Like we were like packing fucking shells, bombs, and this big fucking beehive of shit, and like stood up on the mountain, fucking packed those things, and I'm like, big ass titties. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Nature's about to piss her pants soon. <laughs> uh, I was, dude, I stood up there. Literally, I was like, clacked it. I was like, big-ass titties. <laughs> Mother Nature just pissed herself. Oh, yeah, it was great. So, yeah, he's fucking... This? this is clearly before my time, because this sounds fucking amazing. You would not have been invited. <laughs> mature adults. <laughs> like, 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 there was a time when uh, uh, things were a little faster and looser, when we used to be able to go out and have some good times, but now those days are over, so now we don't. Yeah, shed a tear. John, you gotta get on that bridge jump. I'm fucking game. I'll tell you, you have you ever hey, jumped? I'll the fucking Moody been with you. Have I'm you ever done it? anything like that, John? Bungee jump? Yeah, yeah I bungee jumped, and uh, it was pretty cool. We we jumped out of a hot air balloon. Oh yeah. Was it tied around your ankles or your waist? Uh, I was around her ankles. Ooh. And it, it was pretty cool. The most bitching part, though, like the jump was cool, but like all of a sudden you like slow down, slow down, and there's like a split second that you shoot back up, and the second part I thought was the coolest, because you're going back up, and then you get to come back down, and then you fucking dangle there like a hanger until they fucking lower the hot air balloon and drop you down. That's freaking crazy. Uh, what about I was in high school, so I was about 235, maybe 240 pounds. I think the weight limit was 250. <laughs> Jesus. So. Luke? You ever, you I ever like six, it's like like it's not my fault. You guys are like five foot five, five foot six. <laughs> but like tails over like six five. Like what am I gonna be? Six five, one thirty five. I mean, come on, get over. No, Denny. Yeah, when uh, Ben and I had a seminar in New Zealand, which John was supposed to go to, but totally flaked down. Uh, we went down to Queenstown and we did all that shit and over the our, river. Yeah, we did. Yeah, a lot of did a bunch of jump there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they oh. were. Uh, well, they were. It's supposed to like jump off and dump into the river, but they had just changed. The bungee, so too it was, springy. So it was too springy. I fucking couldn't hit it, and I was so, so hungover. I had food poisoning for like three days. <laughs> Didn't eat. Couldn't hold down water, but we, I could handle, you know, maybe a dozen beers or so, I guess. Yeah. And uh, just felt so fucking miserable the next day. And like just hearing you talk a few minutes ago about like toes on the edge, I, I'm sure my fucking internal voice is a little different than yours. Like yeah. you're probably like cool and collective. I'm like. What the fuck am I fucking doing? I'm Everybody has myself. that feeling. I you have the same feeling. You're just like okay, like every every uh, ounce of who you are is telling you like what are you what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, well, get it's it, like you said, yeah. it's physics. The ground's there. Yeah, like get away from here. You're on the edge. You're on the edge. Get out of here. Luke, I have to be honest. I flaked on that trip so I could go on an even better trip where we went down to mid south. 
Oh, okay. So, that is a better. That's a better trip. <laughs> so, so, so these guys are like, "Hey, I'm like, I'm gonna have to cut out on this one." And they're like, "Why?" I'm like, "I got hired to go on this gig in Mississippi." And they're like, "That sounds shitty." I'm like, "Yeah, it sounds terrible." And it was like seven days in mid south. So, for any guys who've been to Shaw's in mid south, you'll understand on that one. Touche. Yeah, it was a good time. So what else we got, Denny? Uh, we're going to go into some favorite movies, or this is about the time we get to, like, the nitty-gritty, right? Well, how about this? Let me, before we jump into that, um, are, do, you, do you do any training for either whether it's for skydiving or wingsuit, or do you do any, like, training for military anymore? What are you talking about, like, physical training, or I actually train people? Any, any, just, I mean, because I guess I was looking to compare and contrast uh, your experience in training that population versus... Uh, back in the heyday, when you'd have a bunch of gen pop jamokes like us trying to start a CrossFit gym or whatever the fuck, and uh, just compare and contrast the training and the, you know how receptive individuals are and shit like that. I mean, I think the I mean, I obviously still do train myself, and I do a lot of military contracting and actually teach uh, a lot of Air Force guys on the East Coast skydiving okay. stuff, and I watch the way that they work out, and I think you know the ship has definitely sailed on the Arnold Schwarzenegger like pumping iron time period, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, but I mean, who hasn't done some buys and tries, you know, a little chest and tries on Monday, back and buys on Tuesday, think about running on Wednesday, there's your cardio, and then right yeah. back to chest and tries, right, you don't actually have to do the run, uh, you know, but in the military, when I first got in, it was a lot of that, or you were a triathlete, you know what I mean, and then some people would try to blend it, and from what I'm seeing now in pretty much every military unit, you know, they don't use the word CrossFit, you know, they, they fall back to functional training, but everybody's doing relatively the same stuff. Yeah. I think that everybody recognizes that you're just not going to be good at carrying heavy weight over any type of distance by sitting in the gym and doing, you know, hack squats mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So everybody's doing that same type of stuff. My own personal training, the only thing that I've done is probably dialed the volume back just a little bit, and that actually helps me keep the intensity just a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. My biggest thing, though, is I just want to be I want to be strong, and I want to be able to, you know, kind of maintain. So I work on the strength aspect of it with the weights just at my house. And like I said, a lot of the base jumping stuff, when you're hiking 10, 15 miles a day, the first week sucks, and then you're already working on the other stuff you need mm-hmm. to be working on because I'm not going to go hike 10 to 15 miles a day in San Diego. Uh, I get all my cardio from just doing sprinting stuff. I'd much rather just do hard sprints at my house up the hill and then go hit some weights. And, I mean, that's basically what I'm doing now. I've just kind of backed off my expectation of the weights that I should be using because I'm almost 38 years old, which means I'm going to die really, really soon because you don't <laughs> live past 38. Uh, you know, and it's just it's the same stuff, just targeted differently. I, I mean, really, I've been training so, the same way for, like, the last 10 years and just tweaking little stuff here and there towards the end state. So it's you lift some heavy weights, stay strong, and make sure you do enough conditioning that you're not a total, like, pig and out of shape. Yeah, totally. And I do most of my conditioning, like I said, with just the sprinting, just because it it hurts, but it's done quick, and I find I have way better cardio. Lift weights and sprint, and then compete at something. Like, it's crazy, crazy talk. All right, and last question, I guess, before we get to just the nonsense. Uh, In a... You know, John talks about his career in the NFL. He had yep. 10 years, and uh, and how he's observed now that it's kind of become a different league. Yeah. Right? I mean, you guys in the Seals, it's that is a performance athlete to a T. For sure. Now you've spent 17 years, and you've been out for a couple. Yep. Do you think that 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 environment has evolved or changed for the better, for the worse? I think it's getting better. Um, uh, you know, I look at the gear we had when I first got in, and I look at the gear we had when I got out. My, night and day difference. You know what yeah. I mean? You might as well compare, you know, a hockey stick to a tailor-made driver. I mean, it, like, you couldn't be totally different in the technology and the weight and the way things were thought of. The conditioning, the same way, you know, buys and tries and, you know, triathlete type stuff to what they're doing now. And now almost every command has a strength conditioning coach like uh, Josh Everett is the guy for the West Coast SEAL teams. I mean, the guy's sitting down there, wealth of knowledge. You know, what does he advocate guys do? Lift heavy. Sprint, you know, and everything in between with flexibility and mobility and stretching built in there, even though I don't agree with any of that shenanigans. Uh, you know, and the guys seem to be, at the very least, uh, much more tech savvy. There's a lot more technology on the battlefield than there was when I first came in. I mean, I remember my first set of night vision goggles that I got to look through was in, like, 97. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. 
and now you like you would just throw that thing in a recycling bin. Yeah. So everything is kind of moving in that direction. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, I was having this conversation, you know, with my sons last night. They're doing homework, you know. He's like, "Oh, daddy, my calculator is so awesome. You know, I can just do anything with it." I'm like, "Yeah, but your calculator is useless if you don't know what information to put into it. It comes down to the end user, not the technology." Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the cool thing about the SEAL teams, you know, and the training being what it is, is that I think that the level of guy, like. As technology improves, it gives us better insight into what we're doing in the selection process, so then you can make improvements. I think it's just a slow wheel of, of progression. And from what I'm seeing with the guys, I mean, there's no, there's no difference. You know, what I mean, that they're, if anything, they're a little bit more capable now than I was when I was in their position. Yeah. So everything's moving in the right direction. Nice. Good shit. Yep. That is cool. Could you, um, you know, I, I can't remember if it was. Uh, somebody we had on our show, or if it was just a conversation I, I had here at home, uh, but they were talking about how, you know, like when the seals, the history of the seals would be more like water-based, you know, frogman kind of training, and then when we kind of got into all this Middle Eastern conflict, it it became more land-based training, right? Is, it, is that accurate? Is that accurate? It's super accurate. You know, when 9/11 first kicked off and we did our first deployments, it was. Uh, there's a couple reasons for it. One, we were still calling ourselves boat crews at the time, and we were working for Army guys and Marines, and they're like, why is a boat crew in the desert? You know. But you know, the SEAL teams themselves definitely come from a maritime uh, background. They started with the scouts and raiders way back in the day, then the UDT teams, and then you know, the first SEAL teams, one and two, were commissioned around the Vietnam time period, and all they did was maritime stuff. So insert and extract via water platforms, uh, and that's largely what we focused on even up until about, I would say, you know, 2001, really. I mean, the training we were doing up until then was largely water-based. We do a lot of uh, overland stuff, a lot of land uh, tactics, because obviously if you if you come and go via the water, you're probably going to be on land the majority of the time in between those two things. But then, you know, 9-11 kicked off, and, you know, you get largely two landlocked countries. I mean, Iraq touches the water a little bit, Afghanistan not so much. So we just focused our shift in training, and the cool thing about uh, what I really have enjoyed with the SEAL community is, is that you know basically being a SEAL is just about uh, your ability to problem solve. You know we select for nonlinear problem solvers, and we had been focusing on water-based problems, and the world shifted on us, and we needed to focus on land-based problems. So we adapted our training and changed what we focused on, and we're able to solve those problems equally as well. And it went from you know almost all water stuff to what I would say is now just enough water stuff to stay current with the majority of the focus on land. It's just, it's just, the, it's just the way that the world is right now, and that's the requirement right. that's been, been levied upon us, so that's what we do. So that yeah, problem solving. Taking, like, uh, isn't there kind of a movement right now in the teams to kind of go back and relearn, like, uh, you know, uh, get back to those specialties? Now you have guys that are like, you know, alpine and jungle and trying to go back and kind of create those specialties, because isn't that how the teams were kind of broken up pre-9-11? Yeah, they were uh, geographically specific, so there'd be Arctic teams, there'd be jungle teams, there'd be desert teams, and I think more than anything, they're trying to make sure that at least there are some subject matter placeholders, like maybe not necessarily make a whole team an expert at that, but make sure that there's people inside of the SEAL community that are the subject matter experts that then can spread that information, because I think what they're really doing is just taking a look at, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are, are wound down. They're trying to take a look at what's going to be next, and it's you might as well just go to Vegas and try to bet on a number that's going to come up. You don't really know, so you got to make sure you have that broad knowledge base. So they're trying to push out a little bit more, from my understanding, and just kind of get maybe a little bit more current in those skill sets that we haven't paid attention to as much in the last you know, 12, 13 years of fighting. So. Have you ever met Dick Marchenko? I have not. What about uh, what about the operation that uh, um, that uh, that they did? You know, the for the um, uh, the documentary GI Jane. Can you talk a little bit about that? With the, uh, it was a documentary. What specifically would you like to hear about that? I mean, I'd, I'd really like to uh, hear a little bit about you know the integration of females in terms of buds training and potentially female Navy SEALs and you know kind of that kind of move. I tell you what, uh, I'm all for it. Gender, I have no problem with gender equality. The only issue I would have is uh, a modification of the standards, even to 1%. Uh, if there's a woman out there who wants to go through that training and she can meet every single standard that the guys are held to, I mean, 15% of the guys make it through now, if that much. You know what I mean? So there's an attrition rate hovering at 85%. As long as that 
there is no favor given in any direction, either to those guys or to those gals, then send it. I mean, who am I to say? Yeah. In terms of selection, I mean, that's I've heard you talk before about maybe the other podcast about the evolution of, of buds. Yeah. Do you is there can you foresee a further evolution, or is that just going to kind of adapt as needed? Buds is just you know buds is a meat grinder, and yeah. you don't learn anything in buds. You just it's uh, selection, and then refinement maybe a little bit towards the end. So all you're really doing is just filtering guys out. You know, it's not and that process has been working the way that they have it set up for decades. I don't see any real reason to change it. I mean it's a combination of hypothermia, exhaustion, you know, I wouldn't say malnutrition. The one thing you do get a ton of in buds is food. It's you know, it's pain and suffering and camaraderie, you know what I mean? And trying to figure out how you do it. it all you really gotta Sounds easy. All you gotta do is realize at some point that, you know, there's a threshold where you think you need to stop because it really hurts. And you can easily go through that if you want to because that's self-imposed. And the power of being able to disassociate how much pain you're in and, you know, kind of worry about the guy next to you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Once you can kind of realize that those two things exist and then you can do them to a degree, then, you know, the world is, you know, there's a world of opportunity opens itself to you. Yeah. And that process is great at, at, at doing that. And then we layer the training on top of it. You don't know a damn thing coming out of BUDS. You're so goddamn dangerous. Yeah. You know? You think you're six foot tall and bulletproof, but you're just a fucking moron with a license to hurt other people. So, uh, Andy, I was gonna say nothing has changed for you then. Correct. Well, I didn't, didn't uh, say I was yeah. the sharpest tool in the shed. I, I was gonna, you know, as you're saying that, I'm just replaying our, you know, we we talked about it on the Wadcast podcast, but the, that night we were at the Islands Bar, which, uh, uh, you know, fucking fit that perfectly. So. Yeah, well, I'm already the most evolved species that there is, so it's not like I can go any farther, John. You know what I mean? And you know what? I wouldn't want you to. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right, so I'm going to start wrapping this up here. But uh, So, Andy, I guess the, the big thing is everyone who's fucking listening to this should at least give you $1. Well, there's two things, right? So here's the thing like that I've realized. You know, jumping out of an office stuff is so much easier than trying to drive awareness on something and raise money. Like, yeah. the jumping aspect of this is so simple in comparison to try to get people's eyes on stuff. So, I mean, yeah, if you can give a dollar, I mean, that's awesome. But, you know, second to that is hit the share button yeah. and push it out to people because I get it not, you know, donating money is is it is what it is. And everybody's got their own financial situation. So at the very least, hit the share button. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, but it's tough, man. Like, God damn, it's... I mean, it's a great cause. I don't think there's anybody who would see it who'd be like, fuck these guys. But it's so hard to get it to, like, you know what I mean, to light the fire on something to get it to grow a little bit. All right, so I just did a trial run. It took two seconds to fucking share it. So no one has an excuse. And the site that you're going to go to is gofundme.com, and then that's forward slash NSF man on a mission. So it's for the Navy SEAL Foundation, right? There's where the NSF comes from, Man on a Mission. Or you can go to the GoFundMe page and uh, put in there Man on a Mission, and my name will will show up there as well, too. Dude, as I'm sitting here listening, it sounds like Go Fuck Me page. So uh, just go fund me. Also, if you guys want to know, on CrossFit Football, we've been putting up the link on the daily workout of the day, the DWOD, the daily workout of the day. Get it. Uh, so there's a link on the picture every day for Andy's um, uh, GoFundMe page, and if you want to donate money, so click on it, give some money. Power athletes contributed. We were one of the first people to jump on as soon as I saw it. And, um, you know, oh, yeah. hey, anything you guys can do, we're more than happy to, to you know, to take part and you know, man on a mission. For a five thousand dollar donation, John was going to do a nude uh, calendar shoot. Mm-hmm. So, well, here's the we already have the nude calendar, oh, so perfect. we're just going to send it out. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> I am totally in. If you, you know what? If it raises money, I'm in. That's interesting. I'm going to start a new GoFundMe then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Is it called John on a mission? Yeah. Andy's mission for John. I kind of think, like, with, you know, when people start looking at, like, uh, wanting to contribute, you know, and fundraise and, and what charity to donate – you know, there's, there's there's the people who hang out, you know, at the Salvation Army, kind of like ringing the bell at Christmas, looking for donations. But, you know, uh, through like Power Athlete and CrossFit Football, I mean, we got Wade's Army and, you know, uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation. I mean, you're credible, like, you know, uh, places where you can donate. 
and you know it's going to make a difference. You know the people involved. You know it's not going to go to some like bullshit banquet hall. The money's bringing in like a guest speaker. You know, like it's going to legitimately make make what you're intending that money. You know, uh, to help, right? Honestly, there's probably two no two. There's not two better foundations in terms of like, you know, like uh, take care of those that, that take care of us, helping with the Navy SEAL Foundation, and money to fight pediatric cancer. Like I, um, you know, like somebody asked me like, oh, you know this, and I'm like, dude, uh, you know, I'm, you know, breast cancer, prostate cancer, all these other things are terrible diseases, and we need uh, more, you know, information, more research, more this. But like, let's let's fund some kids and let's help some kids that we potentially need them to grow up to get maybe potentially get those things down the line. Like, like, and you know, and everybody listen to this. I mean, most of you guys are parents, fathers, mothers, the whole deal. And it's like to see this really strike out. So, I mean, these are two things that are dear and near to our heart and that's why we support them. And, you know, we just expect if you're part of the power athlete family to, you know, that you're going to, you know, support us, support me and support Andy and the guys. So please, mm -hmm. please, uh, you know, help us out and, uh, you know, help Andy reach his goal. And also our goal this year to raise a hundred thousand dollars for Wade's army. Thanks Andy for, for coming out, man. It's uh, appreciate you. Fabric or whatever the house made it was. Uh, no worries, man. Thanks for having me. Sure. Best of luck. And we got to get John down to that bridge jump. I'm in. Just I'm in. You committed to it. So, all right, let's put it yeah, on. Yeah, well, I, I, you know what? I I already have two kids and one on the way, so what's the worst that could happen? Nah, nothing. It's a, no, there's no. water down there. It's a, you get a cannonball. That's it. Yeah, I'll be good. <laughs> all right, guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Show your support for Man on a Mission, Andy Stump's fundraising effort benefiting the Navy SEAL Foundation, and take the time to donate what you can. A family of a fallen service member will benefit from your generosity in ways you may not even expect. Again, that website is gofundme.com backslash NSF Man on a Mission. Learn more about the Navy SEAL Foundation at NavySEALFoundation.org. Until next week, bye! Gotta make this run on time. A little white pill for them, little white.